Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of PathPod News Edition. Today our host, Dr. Meredith Pittman, speaks with Dr. Kevin Simon, a psychiatrist at Boston Children's Hospital, about the role that structural racism plays in encounters between physicians and patients, trainees and educators, and physician colleagues. They'll talk about how COVID-19 has highlighted race-based disparities, and Dr. Simon will give his advice about dealing with kids during the pandemic and quarantine. Our host, Dr. Pittman, is on Twitter at Mayor Pitt, and our guest, Dr. Simon, is on Twitter at Dr. K.M. Simon. Now here's your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Hello, and welcome to PathPod News Edition. I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. This week, the pandemic continues to roil the United States, which has recorded 3.5 million cases of COVID-19. While there's still broad concern about the nation's testing capacity, which has been a problem since the beginning, many worries are much closer to home, including the uncertainties surrounding schooling. The CDC, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the president seem to have differing opinions about what is safe and feasible for schools during this unprecedented time. Two of the nation's largest school districts, Los Angeles and San Diego, recently made the executive decision to keep public schools completely closed for the fall term, while New York City, Seattle, Omaha, and other cities have announced that they will split classrooms into smaller groups that alternate attendance by day or week. The school issue is difficult for children who are isolated at home, but it's also hard for working parents, especially for low-income essential workers, many of whom are in minority communities that have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. I'm so pleased to have Dr. Kevin Simon with us this week to discuss all of these current events with a specific focus on race and racism within medicine. Dr. Simon is a board-certified psychiatrist currently completing fellowships in child and adolescent psychiatry and addiction psychiatry at Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. Dr. Simon, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. Since you are a psychiatrist, I first wanted to start with talking about some of the mental health challenges that are going along with the pandemic, the protests, everything that's going on. We know that Black and Native Americans are more likely to have mental health issues and less likely to have access to quality health care in our country than their white counterparts. We're living through a pandemic that is disproportionately affecting those communities. And um, what, what can we do? What can we do as physicians to make sure that the, health of our, the mental health of our underserved communities are taken care of? What can we do as non-psychiatrists uh, to lend a hand to mental health in those communities? And, you know, as a pathologist, I don't see patients, but perhaps there are organizations I can donate to or something like that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So, uh, one, thanks for having me. Um, two, with regards to your, your point, I think you're correct. Certainly we are, or, or black and brown communities are being more impacted negatively by coronavirus or COVID and yeah, generally don't have as much access. Um, and then with other, the, the further problem is when they do have access, they're often not paired with someone who looks like them, um, whether that's gender or, or ethnically. Um, so I think what we can do is one, just acknowledge that, right? So oftentimes problems or concerns that patients may have or people may have tend to be dismissed. Um, and so one, just acknowledging and validating that um, patients may be feeling stressed, colleagues may be feeling stressed, 
um, and allowing for that, that what I would call like a holding space um, for someone to admit their emotions is actually valuable. Because again, not everyone's going to be able to afford or see a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they need to be able to have a space where they can, you know, couch some of their emotions um, without feeling bad that they're mentioning it. Um, with regards to other providers, in terms of donations, so there are organizations that one can find locally or nationally that they can contribute to. And I would just advise that someone, you know, do their due diligence on, on Google um, and just make sure that's a reputable organization. There mm-hmm. are some organizations that are specifically catered towards funding um, providers to provide access to persons of color. So I can think of therapy for black girls. Um, mm-hmm. They do a match um, where their donations are then matched and then that's provided to the mental health clinician to be able to provide a service that perhaps folks could not readily afford. That's um, great. There are organizations and uh, foundations out there that, that, that folks can contribute to if they themselves are not a mental health clinician or provider. Thanks. And while we're talking about patient interactions, I saw that you mm-hmm. had written some about the importance of making sure that patients feel comfortable in these clinical settings. And right. you specifically were writing about in mental health settings, but other physicians who may be listening could be internal medicine doctors or pathologists who do bone marrow biopsies. And I saw you specifically right. wrote about um, interacting with black men and right. how some of the things we should think about to make sure that we have positive patient clinician encounters. Could you speak right. a little bit to that for us? Yeah. So, you know, um, and I'll speak about it from a non-psychiatric standpoint. So I, I had a colleague um, explain to me, so he, he happens to be a black male. Mm-hmm. He's going to a cardiologist and the cardiologist was like, you know, if you don't change your habits, you're going to die. Like that, like that was the, the cold <laughs> blunted statement. And he's like, you know, I went to him twice and both times he really didn't, you know, like I understood what I was doing, but he really didn't provide like real uh, education around, okay, well, why should I eat healthier? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just was kind of viewed in like a paternalistic kind of manner. Like yeah. you're not doing what I said. You just must want to die early, um, which you know, he no longer goes to that cardiologist. I would say, generally speaking, when you are with a patient and that patient tends to be in a community that regularly doesn't maybe see providers or, you know, because if you, if you go down the sets of men, uh, medical or mental health conditions, whether it's cancer, um, colonoscopies, um, black and brown patients tend to either receive services late uh, diagnoses when they're more severe. And so if someone is in your clinic or you're seeing them by the bedside in the hospital, um, do you take the opportunity to let them share, well, you know, what is it that they know about their own condition or, or what are the fears that they have? Because honestly, generally it's the fear related to learning about a condition and believing that they may actually pass away by going to the doctor. And unfortunately in some communities, if you think about um, you know, maternal mortality. Yeah. It, it's, it's not a fake thing, right? It's, it's, it's not that they're inaccurate. They actually are accurate. So we do sometimes have to take time to allow their concerns to be told. And so I, I mentioned, like, allow the patient to tell their story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm a child psychiatrist. 
I've seen um, patients, young female, and the dad's involved, and dad, they're not necessarily um, white Americans. And the dad's like, well, I don't really believe in this, but I think if it's going to be good for my daughter, then I'm, I'm all for it. Now, rather than I hear him say, oh, I'm all for it, I say, okay, well, actually, tell me, what, what do you mean you don't believe in this? Like, what mm-hmm. is this that you don't believe in? And after about a few minutes, I understood what, where he was coming from, and I didn't disregard what he was saying. Yeah. I, I validated, I said, no, those are actually real concerns that you do have, and let's just see how this actually works out. And we've been working together now for more than a year, right? So he came in with a certain, you know, predisposition about, I'm not sure what psychiatry is, probably did not think that I would be the psychiatrist. Um, but over time, allowing him to feel comfortable, he eventually warmed up to the idea and he's kept her into therapy. He's presented himself. So I, I think allowing patients to generally tell their story. And if someone says that they're skeptical of you, don't feel like it's a personal thing to you. <laughs> it may be related to the actual healthcare system, which we do know based on the evidence and based on the history, they should have some reason to be a little bit skeptical or a little bit paranoid. Cause I mean, <laughs> yeah. even now um, I, I saw an article regarding the potential coronavirus vaccine being mm-hmm. tested in HeLa cells, the same Henrietta Lack cells that, you know, you, you date back. She, she gave unknowingly, right? So, so, our history is is fraught with information that says some patients probably should be a little bit more cautious with engaging in the healthcare system. So if you meet that patient, allow them to share why they feel fearful um, and, and allow them to build trust in you. So really listening to your patient, not just hearing right. them, but actually listening to them and, and responding to that. Right. That's wonderful. Right. So you mentioned children, and uh, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old, and I know there could be parents listening. With the pandemic and with the protests and with the quarantine, we've had our own challenges here at home of, you know, tired of being indoors and right. all the same. Right. So what, what would you say to kids? Because I, I know, for instance, I have a friend whose middle school daughter was worried about the fact that her mom was going to be treating patients with coronavirus and her mom could get sick. So I know our kids are picking up on these stressors. What do you say to these kids? How are we, how can we reassure them when things don't seem so reassuring? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. So, so what I would say is that, yes, during this um, pandemic, the, again, I'm at Boston Children's, we've completely um, gone virtual um, and we actually have a lower no-show rate during the pandemic, in part because uh, there are a number of families, patients, um, parents saying this is causing a lot more stress. And so the kiddos that had anxiety or had depression or had mood dysregulation, that's upticking. And so generally when there are stressful events, we all regress. And so it's not surprising that I am meeting parents who have a six-year-old, who have an eight-year-old, who have a five-year-old, and their behaviors are sometimes seeming like they're younger. And (laughs) it's not that um, the child wants to be doing that, but when you've now, again, pressure of you have to be home or we're going to do 
daycare via Zoom. <laughs> or mommy's working, but she she's in the home, but she can't talk to you. Right. Um, that creates like, wh- why is this happening to me? Right. And so the kid, some of them don't really understand or it, it's too abstract. Like this virus, what does that mean? I thought viruses are bad, that we just wash our hands. Um, so you, you, we really are throwing a lot at the, the younger uh, middle grade school kids. And so, yeah, the dysregulation that, that sometimes happens might feel like they're younger. And, and really it is just, a, it's, a, it's a slight regression that some um, children are responding to. So the ways that, that you mitigate that are you try to create as much structure as possible, right? So, okay, we're going to have um, iPad time or we're going to have TV time. Okay, we're going to go outside and yes, we're going to wear a mask, but we're going to walk around the park. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you have to create this environment that there is some sense of normalcy. And when you provide that sense of normalcy, you'll recognize that some of the behaviors that were aberrant kind of come back to to normal. But one thing to consider as kids and parents are considering going back to school, right? Yeah. A lot, I, I, I get a lot of parents who are like, I'm not really sure. Should I send my kid back? The school, you know, they're telling me I have to provide the mask. They might have an extra mask. Um, we're all in an environment where we're learning on the fly. And so I, I tell parents what we have to do right now is be prepared for the unpreparable and be comfortable being uncomfortable. The reality is we're all figuring this out. Mm-hmm. Um, you try as best as possible to get um, your information from the best news sources or the best podcasts. Um, and, you know, you make an educated decision. Um, so, you know, ask your pediatrician, ask your child psychiatrist if you have one. Um, don't feel like you're doing these things by yourself. And for parents, recognize you're not by yourself. You have other sets of parents. You have other sets of friends. Um, and again, just like I, we mentioned earlier about allowing patients to have that holding space to share their information, parents can, can do the same with each other. Like, oh my gosh, like the last week has been crazy in my household. <laughs> and as a supportive parent, you can listen and say, oh, yeah, this week's been pretty good. But last week, oh, yeah, that was a rough week, right? You, you create a space for each other um, to be able to vent without feeling bad. Um, yeah. so, so, so those are some suggestions that, that I would say parents should definitely um, look at. And, and the behaviors that you see in your kids have right now, they're not, not normal. They are <laughs> completely normal. Um, you're, you're asking your kid to function in a very stressful environment. Yeah, that's so true. And let me tell you, I have some, some group texts with moms and there have been weeks <laughs> where we've been like, what is happening right now? But it, yeah. it is, you're right. It's very help. It's been very helpful to me to know that it's not just in my household, that it's right. in, it's in everyone's household. It makes me feel a little less lost. It's true. And we happen to be talking about you know, preschool um, age kids, but the same can be said for for the high school students that I see Mm -hmm. who initially in Massachusetts in March, that's when schools kind of shut things down. They're like, oh, I'm, 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 I'm happy. I'm like, I don't have to go to school. You know, I'm just doing Zoom like two hours a day. And then, you know, April came and then May came and then June came and they're like, that's, I want to get like out of this house. Right. Exactly. Every, everybody is feeling it. Even the super chill, you know, 14-year-old that, that, that thinks you're cool, 
they are feeling like, okay, this is a little bit much. When can I actually hang out with my friends again? Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we're all, we are all feeling it. We're all feeling it. So thanks. That's very helpful. So that's a little bit about your psychiatrist hat. So now I want to, I yeah. want to shift directions a little bit. Um, because one of the reasons I asked you on was specifically to talk about some of the racial injustice issues, mm -hmm. systemic racism mm -hmm. issues, and let's start with medical training. So there have been a few studies out in the past few years in various journals, and then some essays that have come out more recently about mm -hmm. the extent of discrimination that occurs throughout medical training. And that can be everything from from really, really overt, terrible name-calling to just right. uh, microaggressions that people are talking about. And right. it seems right. like people of color are exhausted. <laughs> Can yeah. you talk a little bit to our audience about um, what racial discrimination can look like in medical training. And also, I, I feel like I just heard the term microaggression for the first time a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, I've heard some pushback against it. I believe it's real. But I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners what are microaggressions and why the people who complain about them aren't just whining. I'll start there. So microaggressions um, is a phrase and a concept founded by Chester Pierce, who happened to himself be a psychiatrist. Um, at, at Harvard Medical School. And so what Dr. Pierce was trying to describe was the everyday small death by a thousand needles, mm. small, subtle comments or behaviors that may not be perceived initially as racially motivated, but over time they build up. So um, an example that, that I'll use that is very common um, for um, trainees who are black or brown in medicine might be, oh, you're different. <laughs> Meaning, well, well, what do you mean I'm different, right? And it could just be, oh, no, you know, like, you're, you're super articulate. Well, you know, what does that mean? Like, how do I, how do I take that compliment, right? right. Um, because if I, if I now react to that, the person, oh, you know, like, you're just being super emotional. So I have to hold that hmm. and I go the next day and then I have a patient interaction and they're like, oh, um, oh yeah, hey, uh, here's my tray. It's like, hmm. oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm not the house staff, sir. I'm, I'm actually, you know, your resident physician or I'm your fellow, I'm your, your attending. And again, you take it, oh, and the person says, oh, I'm sorry. And you say, okay, all right, I hold that, right? And then the next day there's a conversation that's had and your judgment is a little bit questioned and you're like, but wait a minute, the, the medical student that's next to me just said the same exact answer, but now you're validating that answer. So there are, there are all these subtle commentaries and behaviors that um, black and brown medical students, residents, fellows, attending hold with them on a day-to-day -day basis. Cause the reality is you can't actually um, react to every subtle common that you hear and so you are holding it. and and what often happens is there tends to be a boiling point right and so the microaggression eventually starts to to crack and break you down mm -hmm. and so that's where folks experience burnout folks experience truth uh real depression and so it, it's often why there's a high percentage of of the low percentage of, of, of black and brown medical uh personnel i'll just say that Mm -hmm. leave academic medicine tends to be because in the academic infrastructure, 
that is just so perpetuated. It's like, why would I stay when I can go into private practice or I can go for group? Why would I allow myself to, to continue to feel this way, right? So for instance, yeah. I, I'm sure that there are a number of, of institutions that we've all trained at that have a chief diversity officer. But what, what does that person do, mm-hmm. right? What's the funds that aff- that's afforded to them to you know, initiate any particular activities? The medical institution, the medical establishment is, is fraught with racism. Um, and so, again, the microaggressions are that those daily encounterances that, that um, persons have. With regards to medical education specifically, we can go down the line in the, the textbooks um, and look at the different physiology, cardiology, nephrology, and each chapter you know, in Harrison's or each chapter in, in um, uh, Robbins has a section that will say, oh, in black people, this is mm. worse. Oh, well, why is it worse? Right. Um, or, you know, a number of institutions are now removing race, race as a variable for, um, you know, glomerular filtration rate. I saw that. Why, why was it ever really a variable for glomerular filtration rate? Mm-hmm. Um, so, those, these are all subtle ways in which medical education is continue to actually allow people to believe certain things that then they then treat people in a certain way. There was a study, I think, in 2016 or 2017 um, out of a, uh, I won't say which medical school, but uh, medical students were surveyed about myths for African-Americans. And about 40% of the medical students said, oh, yeah, black people have, like, tougher skin. Black people feel pain a little bit less. Black wow. people, their, their gum color is different. Now, one can say, oh, well, you know, Dr. Simon, that's just one school, it's one institution. Maybe, maybe it's just them. But then one looks at a national um, study out of Children's National in D.C. and says, oh, wait a minute, you actually had... Black and brown, black and brown patients were treated differently for pain yeah. than their white counterparts. Well, where did how? Why? Why so? Right. So, um, the things that we do learn in in medical education, unfortunately, do transcend into what happens with um, actual patient outcomes. Now, again, it's not just the medical institution because racism is kind of like air; it is just everywhere. You can't really avoid it. Um, but too often we find that there actually aren't genetic variabilities between us, right? So when they, when they coded the human genome, 99.2% of us have the same sets of genetics. So it's not really that black people have schizophrenia more. No, it's actually that, well, what is the DSM? The DSM tends to have diagnoses that, oh, if the person's uh, mood or behaviors are outside the norm Norm. of society, it can be perceived as, okay, this person meets criteria for generalized anxiety disorder, or this person Mm -hmm. can meet criteria for schizophrenia. Well, if you have the wrong provider interviewing the wrong person and perceives that person's comments as, that's a little paranoid. You You really think that, you know, Cops are after you, like you really think that? A note can be written where it looks like the person is paranoid, is hyperzealous, 
and there's a label that is given to that person. So there's a great book, um, the, the Protest Psychosis um, by Jonathan Metzl, who's a, who's a psychiatrist and MD, PhD anthropologist who highlights just that, that exact fact of in the 60s and 70s during the civil rights era, that there was promotion of Haldol. Oh, you wanna calm your protester? Give them Haldol. Wow. Right? So there, there's a lot of history in why certain conditions are perpetuated in certain um, demographics. Um, so yeah, the, the medical education um, infrastructure itself, we do have a lot to do. And so this is why you're seeing the essays now being written about, this is what I, this is what I experienced and I need, really need my institution to make a change. Yeah. It seems like what you describe with those microaggressions would also cause a lot of self-doubt. Like, oh, yeah, am yeah, yeah. I different? Am I saying the right things? Am yeah. I so meant that, to be here? That's where the, the, the term or the phrase imposter syndrome is coming from, right? So if I am a medical student or a resident and I'm the only person of color in my class or the only person of color in my cohort, and people are looking at me and suggesting things, um, who do I have to confide in? Mm. Who do I have to bounce my idea? Who do I trust to say, hey, this is what, what's happened to me? <laughs> um, I can tell you personally for myself, in numerous cases, but, but I'll go to, to med school, I was on my OB-GYN rotation. I'm overnight, mm-hmm. labor and delivery, and essentially the IV was the IV bag was done, so it's, it's making a noise. So I go to the nurse's, yeah, it, I'm going to the nurse's station. I'm like, hey, you know, room 11, um, the IV bag's done. Can you just tell me, like, how to turn off the, the, the beeper? The nurse walks. She goes in. She does it. And, I, and I'm, I'm, literally, I'm, just sta- I'm literally standing at the door watching her do it. Mm-hmm. The next morning, the resident, who happened to be black, the resident's like, hey, Kev, what happened? I was like, what, well, what do you mean what happened? Like, well, you know, one of the nurses says, like, you were trying to, like, intimidate her. I was like, intimidate her? And most people who know me, like, it, they hear this story, like, you, Kevin? I'm like, I, I guess so. Um, and what, what happened? You know, she made a complaint that I was standing by the door looking menacingly at her, and I was trying to indip- intimidate her. That gets to the clerkship director, right. and I have to have a meeting. and I'm And I'm literally, like, worrying about shelf and worrying right. about questions and here it is I have to answer some questions about my behavior when I really don't like I don't know what I was doing other than being who I am right existing how, how, yeah how are you supposed to leave that encounter mm-hmm. like you're just flabbergasted right you're just mm-hmm. like what do I do who do I tell who's my advocate fortunately I had a resident who vouched for me and said no no Kevin's like been stellar he hasn't had any issues right and so the clerkship director also had knowledge of my past experiences and said I don't think that would be you and so you know it doesn't get marked down on my record but it's marked down in my in my mind it's marked down on my hippocampus I I'm now you know more than a decade away and I'm still remembering that that interaction yeah um and so there are literally hundreds of that hundreds of those for a number of black and brown physicians and, and, and medical students and medical trainees. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, if you're not well um, mindful, if, you're, if you don't have a good support system, 
um, that can be really detrimental. And I, and unfortunately, I've met black and brown medical um, students, trainees who have left med, med school, who yeah. have um, been displaced from programs, really for being themselves. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, that, that is, that is a, unfortunate, a too common thing that happens. Um, and, and institutions tend to say, oh, well, that's just, it's just that person. It's like, well, no, no, no it's, it's really not just that individual. Um, it's, <laughs> right. it's pretty systemic wide. So speaking of institutions, you know, with all the articles coming out about the systemic inequities in this mm -hmm. pandemic, we're seeing a lot from institutions posting about how Black Lives Matter and they're right. against racism, but none of this is new. This Correct. has been the way it's been. And uh, there have been a lot of essays, again, written by especially some black women physicians mm -hmm. who are mm -hmm. leaving academia. Right. And I'm just wondering, these things juxtaposed at the same time in my mind, institutions saying black lives matter, and then simultaneously this woman's leaving her job because of this litany of things that have happened right. to her over the past decade. Right, right. Can these institutions change? Like, do you have any hope for that? Or is it just, <laughs> is, the, is the white male patriarchy so baked into yeah. them that, that, they, that it's impossible to have the kind of structural change that needs to happen? I'm just, I, I, like, I don't no, know that no, this is even a question worth airing because I, I don't want to get you in trouble. <laughs> but um, I'm really struggling with this right now, like watching these two, like, Ships yeah, no, no, and I'm just like, um, you know, you've had decades to fix this and you haven't. Right. I, I just, right. I don't know. Can they actually do it? Yeah, no, it, it's, um, so one, yeah, I did not anticipate this question, uh, Sorry. but we, <laughs> no, but it's okay. But it's, it's, it's good and it's needed. So I do, I do think that institutions, not only like, can they, they have to change. Yeah. Um, and I think Fortunately, unfortunately for the loss of George Floyd, there have been a number of things that have come from that. And that loss and the losses of Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, Ahmaud Arbery, and others since um, happening in this particular time is critical because we don't have anything else distracting us, mm -hmm. right? So we're all quarantined relatively, and there isn't sports, although those are coming back. So the news is either coronavirus or related to racial injustices. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's particularly why you see institutions, organizations really um, acknowledging the, the past history that we've had in, in this country. I think for institutions specifically, there can be changes made. Um, and what you're also seeing is the leadership and the folks that are in the minority that happen to be black and brown, they are also saying, hey, you have me here. It's now time to actually start paying attention to the things that I am suggesting. And here are some you know, key tangible steps of how we can actually make improvements. Now to the persons that have left some, ac some forms of academic medicine. So for instance, Dr. Ruth Shim, mm -hmm. we had a recent um, article about leaving academic psychiatry, but she was specifically talking about the American Psychiatric Association. Right. Um, she's not necessarily leaving the University of San Diego, where, where she's a professor and endowed chair. She's not leaving that. Now you have that countered against Dr. Yuche Blackstock, who has left from NYU yeah. after being there nearly a decade. 
but she's she's left, but not just left and and you know gone into thin air. She's actually founded an organization that's about health equity and has a, a much larger platform now that she's left the confines of academia, where you yeah. gotta talk to the media department, talk to yeah. this department, right? So I I think those two things can exist at the same time. Yeah. And so the leverage that that um, black and brown providers do have is we're also talking about institutions that want to suggest they're providing equitable care, great mm -hmm. care. Well, if you purport yourself to be that way, you need to start having faculty members that look like the demographics of the patients that are around your zip code. Because oftentimes mm -hmm. at these like prestigious institutions, I'm at one, right? You look at the zip code of where you're at, right? yet the patient population does not look like the zip code of the urban environment that you exist in. Yeah. Um, so I think institutions are changing, can change, and that's in part because providers, educators are no longer like assimilating. So one of the things that you're going to, to recognize if you, if you start reading about like anti-racist literature, mm -hmm. uh, so the most notable is How to Be an Anti-Racist by uh, Dr. Kinde, is that there are several, racism exists within several domains, right? So there are people who are quote unquote segregationists, people who are assimilationists, and then there's anti-racist. What you're seeing is people who want to be anti-racist and systems who want to be anti-racist. Yeah. For a very long time, even till today, there are a number of systems that promote assimilationists. And I can say, you know, my parents originally from Haiti migrated over here in 68, 69, you almost had to assimilate because otherwise you're not getting the opportunities, even though they're at lower scale, you're not going to get those opportunities. But I think now there's a generation of people who say, no, I, I don't want to just be a part of the crowd. I want to be my natural self yeah. and show I should be valued and I bring something to the institution. So I, I think institutions can change and, and are actually like, going in that direction not all of them but this wasn't built in one day so it's yeah. going to take some time to to change but we're definitely going in the right direction yeah that's good that's good i'm i'm it's always helpful to hear hope because <laughs> right. right. so right. much of what we're reading is not very hopeful Correct. um kind of in that same vein uh another thing that institutions talk about a lot is the fact that implicit bias exists and right. for any listeners who are unfamiliar with that term. It's basically unconscious attitudes that I may hold about a group of people. It could be old people, or it could be about black physicians, or it could be about women, and that right. will color how I act toward that group, even if I think right. I don't hold those views. Um, right. And so if right. you haven't done it, Project Implicit from Harvard is a nice free website. You can go through and find your own biases. The problem with institutions just talking about that in their training is that I've also read studies that say just recognizing you have implicit bias doesn't seem to actually change how you act. You can be like, oh, yes, I do have discriminatory attitudes towards old people and then still act in a discriminatory way toward old people. So are there things that you know of that actually can help us on an individual level or on a systemic level in dealing with these biases that we hold? Yeah, so I... You, you bring up a great point about implicit bias, right? And so there, there are implicit bias trainings that are actively done at institutions. And 
the particular problem with the trainings are they're classically for, you know, a weekend, right? Mm -hmm. Or they're for a few days as a workshop. The reality is if you want to actually have sustained change, you're going to have to have like an implicit bias training be something that is regular. Hmm. Can't be, oh, I did it this year, I checked the box, and I don't, and I wait 365 days to the next time that I do it again. Because <laughs> um, mm-hmm. just, like, just like racism, racism is not, I wake up one day and I am no longer racist. Mm-hmm. It is an active process that you have to continually do. Yeah. And so implicit bias training is something that has to regularly be done and so when the providers or the staff are engaged in it, you have to, you, you, almost, you have to have like an implicit bias, like champion, like on a unit, right? So <laughs> classically in the stages of change for, for projects, right? There's always a, the, the description of who's the champion for this initiative that we're trying to do. We want to reduce, um, you know, see that, okay, who's going to be the champion for washing hands and always reminding people, we got to wash our hands. We got to wash our hands, right? And mm-hmm. so just like, just like that, which actually then ends up having a positive outcome because more people start washing their hands, see the rates start to go down, right? You have to have somebody. And the issue is, well, not the issue, but one of the points is that person can, but probably should be paired with another person. So it can't just be uh, the black provider is the implicit bias <laughs> champion. Right. Because then that's that's the expectation that, oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's Dr. Simon. That's what he does. Okay, yeah. that's what he's doing. Right. <laughs> it should be a pair or it should be a group that right. is regularly checking in with divisions, regularly checking in with staff to say, you know, are we really trying to promote change? Are we really documenting when things happen? And just like, um, you know, Swiss cheese model, we're not documenting to say, oh, you're the problem person, we're going to remove you. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, thank you for firing the person, but what as, a, as an organization have you done to mitigate that that doesn't happen again? Yeah. And I think that's what institutions have to be mindful of, is I can say, um, unfortunately, a tragic event happened in Michigan, um, and again, I'm, I, I'm in childhood, so I pay attention to these things. There was a, a, a young male who was... Uh, put in a restraint, young African-American male, 16 years old, put in a restraint and had a cardiac event and ended up losing his life. Mm-hmm. Again, the institution said, oh, well, we fired those who put him in the restraint. That is Band-Aid on the problem. Let's go upstream. Why was it that you felt that that particular male needed three, three, three persons to put him down, right? Mm-hmm. There's bias around, oh, black male, 16 but he he's going to be physically stronger he's bigger than what he really is so again we have to treat people equally uh you have to have someone who's championing and regularly checking in Mm -hmm. and you know within academic institutions it has to be a part of the quarterly meetings the committee meetings the the departmental meetings it can't just be oh a checkoff oh yeah we hired somebody we paid them for the workshop and okay, we're good. No, that, yeah. that, that really can't be it. I like what you say about it's never just one person. It's never right. just that there's this one person you have to get rid of. If there's a person who is a problem, it's probably because there's a systematic problem there that has to be diagnosed and worked on at a higher right. level. Um, right. 
And right. so I can I can really appreciate that. And I think that's very helpful for us to all think about. Yeah, we, we don't do it with, you know, near misses, right? Mm -hmm. We don't just, oh, fire, fire the doc because he wrote, you know, 200 instead of 20. We yeah. don't fire the nurse because she pulled the wrong vowel. No. No, we may everyone get in a room and do a root cause analysis. <laughs> exactly. Why did this happen? What do we have to do? Yeah. Um, how can we mitigate that? It has to be the same thing with racism. Oh, that's a really interesting way to think about it. I like that. Something that comes to mind as we're talking about this is that in order for us to be able to do those, you know, for mm -hmm. lack of a better term, like root cause analysis about like racist in incidents, people have to feel comfortable that they can speak up if something happens to them or if they see right. something. Right. And there's a lot of fear around that. And especially if you're already, say a black or brown physician, you're already in a minority, you may mm -hmm. already be feeling like you don't belong because of these microaggressions. And now in addition to that, we're putting on to you the responsibility to speak up about these incidents. Um, right. what, what do you say to people who are feeling afraid about talking about it publicly? Yeah, so it, it, it's a good question. And I think what has to happen is a recognition that racism is not only the problem of black people, not only the problem of brown people, not only the problem of white people, because the reality is racism affects us all. Yeah. And so, yes, even as a black provider, I have had and probably will have in the future racist ideas. Right. And so I think oftentimes racism itself as a word has been a word that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like the F word. Like people are like, oh, wait, whoa, you said that word, the R word. Why are you? I'm not that. Yeah. And so have to get comfortable with, no, you may be, but that doesn't mean you can't change. Right. right. That doesn't mean that you're it forever. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think allowing folks to recognize that this is not a homogenous problem. It's a heterogeneous problem. We all have assimilation ideas. We all sometimes have segregationist ideas. We all have had racist ideas. We're all trying to mitigate this problem. We have to do it together. And I think the, mm -hmm. the, the common refrain is, no, 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 I'm not, I can't, oh, I'm not racist. I got, I got black friends, you know, like, yeah. what do you, what do you mean? Right. But it, it's not, so that's not the case. It's not because you do or don't have friends. Um, it, it is really about thought patterns, automatic thoughts that just come to your mind. Right. Yeah. Um, so everybody has some forms of racism in them. Mm -hmm. um, where even as a victim of racism, you can believe the negative ideas for yourself. Yeah. Right. So you can start to think I'm not good enough. Well, that's a racist idea that you're having that you're that you're identifying with. We have to break that. Yeah. Um, so so it's really not just a one sided um, or it's not binary. It, it really is um, heterogeneous. It's fluid. Um, it's something that we all have to be actively working on. And I think if it's presented in that manner, um, folks can not feel so on edge at the concept or the idea that they might actually have um, race, racist thoughts or racialized thoughts in their, in, in their head. Thank you for that answer. Um, we all have the room to grow and <laughs> self-improve, right? Yeah. Well, Dr. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience before I let you go? 
Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Uh, this is an important conversation. I'm glad to be communicating with uh, some pathologists. I have some good <laughs> friends with pathologists. Um, and if you, you know, want to keep a tab on what I'm doing, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. D-R-K-M Simon. Um, same thing with Instagram. Um, but again, thank you for having me. Thanks again to Dr. Simon for taking his valuable time to talk with us on News Edition. Links to essays, articles, and books referenced in the audio are linked on the PathPod webpage. This has been PathPod News Edition, and I'm your host, Dr. Meredith Pittman. Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.